welcome to the Cinematologist podcast. I'm Daryl Linares, and of course, down the line, I have my good friend Neil Fox. Neil, how are you? I'm very well. It's lovely to talk to you. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good. Good to talk to you. This is our last show of the series, um, and you know, a big subject that we're going to get into for this episode: Tokyo Story, Ozu. Um, something I've wanted to talk about for a long time, and we've we've talked a little bit, haven't we, about how to space out the types of episodes that we're doing and you know we talked a lot this series about bringing in you know maybe films that people haven't seen and 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 different voices because it seems that that fits the time but always going back to to films that are, are kind of formative I mean and I think obviously formative for many people but you know I'd put that up there as a as a film that sort of got me invested in in the the different types of of styles and forms and ideas that that cinema can bring great stuff yeah I mean as we sort of talked a long time ago on the podcast about the kind of the gaps, this was, you know, Ozu was definitely a gap of mine when, when we started the podcast and I'd seen Tokyo story, but that was, that was it really. So yeah. over the last couple of years, I've really kind of got into uh, his back catalogue and it's been really interesting and sort of, yeah, lots to talk about with, with him and also the film uh, and kind of where it sits in, in his filmography, but also kind of wider film culture and um, that's going to lead us on to some more other conversations about kind of Japanese cinema in general as part of our focus on Japan uh, f- with our with our BFI partnership, which uh, is still ongoing, uh, albeit slightly changed given <laughs> the circumstances. Yeah, what have you thought of the the overall availability now of all of these Japanese titles on the on the BFI play? I mean, to be honest with you, I'm, I've sort of been spoilt for choice. It's been a little difficult, you know, what with everything else going on, to find a kind of structure of the way to approach the, the amount of content that's on there. I mean, there's a couple of directors that I definitely wanted to see some work of, but I think now, you know, there's a little bit more time in the next couple of months I'll definitely be able to get into looking at work that that maybe, I, as you say, sort of fills the gaps that, of things I haven't seen. Yeah, it's strange. I think it's I was sent the the new BFI release, three disc release of uh, Takeshi Kitano. So that's where a lot of my focus has been on his work, uh, sort of revisiting and, and sort of visiting some of that. But also weirdly, kind of the timing wise on uh, Amazon Prime, there's a load of Ishiro Honda monster movies, you know, so it, it feels like a boon time for, for kind of Japanese cinema, but it's always been a, you know, one of the more readily available yeah. kind of national cinemas, you know, certainly on kind of DVD, both historically and contemporary in terms of filmmakers like Takeshi Miike and, and Katana and things like that. So it's, but yeah, it's, it's interesting to know what to, to really look at. And obviously as well, episodes like this are generally structured based on you know the kind of the partners that we end up working with and the kind of focus of the films that that get picked for for being looked at so having a complete history of a country at your fingertips <laughs> to to decide what to focus on is is kind of both a, a kind of a blessing and a curse but i think that the discussions we had that you sort of said about you know when when we knew that the bfi were re-releasing tokyo story as kind of getting to grips with that i think is a is a, a kind of good place to start because it's such a big film in terms of Japanese film culture, but also it leads to important questions about how how that communicates what Japanese cinema might be historically and now that that, that we can kind of get into. Yeah, and I think, I mean, we'll come on to this, but it, it is one of those films that I think is point, pointed to by directors as 
you know, a sort of masterclass in direction. And I think one of the, one of the things, obviously, we're going to talk about is why that is the case. Because, yeah, it's an interesting film in terms of if you put this in front of a quote-unquote lay audience, would they see anything, you know, mesmerizing or magical or yeah. canonical or masterful about it? I mean, it, that's a really interesting question, I think. But yeah, before we get into that, you've got a few films that you want to talk about, which are Bella Lugosi films, ostensibly, that you've been sent. Yes, um, although I'll get into that, whether they are actually Bella Lugosi okay. films. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so Masters of Cinema are releasing a trilogy of Bella Lugosi starring um, Edgar Allan Poe adaptations. Ah. They've got uh, Murders in the Rue Morgue, The Black Cat and The Raven, all sort of from the the early 30s, post-Tracula universal horror. They're very much B-movie horrors in that kind of early 30s period. And yeah, I mean, it's just a lovely set, really really fun movies two of them are also boris karloff movies right so that's why i'm not sure that it's a trilogy of kind of legosi movies because the black cat and the raven they both kind of co-star but on the credits it's boris is given the top billing sure in a, in a way that just must have really annoyed legosi <laughs> um because it's just karloff in these huge caps he's the top star not even boris karloff just karloff like you know who it is and then underneath that it's better legosi and it was hard to watch the films without thinking of, of Edward yeah. and Martin Landau's performance, um, famously yelling, Karloff doesn't deserve to smell my shit, um, which is <laughs> one of my favourite line readings. Um, but you, 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 they're just so different. You know, watching Karloff is so, his presence is just astounding. He doesn't have to do very much. And Lugosi's great fun, but he's kind of always working hard, particularly when he's up against uh, Boris Karloff. So they're great fun movies. But yeah, kind of interesting that they've been packaged as Lugosi films. Hopefully, to 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 see them in that light, to see what he was doing, sort of out of the shadow of of, of Karloff, his kind of great nemesis. But the one thing I did want to, sort of, what I think they're really great films to watch for is this kind of early '30s expressionism that kind of came out of obviously German expressionism that was that Universal horror movies were were kind of really mining, particularly the second in the series, which is uh, the um, the Black Cat which the sets are just absolutely phenomenal and they really add a kind of atmosphere which is which is kind of central to the the, the Poe unease which which runs through them. Uh, and there's a great King Kong ending uh, of the first one, um, Murders in the Rue Morgue. Yeah, Lugosi plays this scientist who's kind of got this gorilla that he's humanising um, and it becomes a kind of King Kong parody at the end. So lots of fun um, and uh, yeah, but and just made me want to sort of seek out Edward again. But uh, that's a really nice set. Brilliant. That sounds uh, that sounds well worth uh, visiting if you can do that. Um, so before we actually get directly into Tokyo Story, we wanted to sort of give a few highlights of some of the the BFI films in the Japan season that that we'd watched, and then you know we can get into Tokyo Story more more directly. And I think that you know there's a possibility we're, we're going to do another Japan episode, maybe on on again a much maybe a, a much lesser known film, but. Um, it was great to be able to to catch up with high and low, and I felt you know when you mentioned this on your newsletter, I think it was recommendations of I, we talked about it at some point, and, and you know as being sort of classical Kurosawa, and, and I was like, shit, I haven't seen that. <laughs> I better get to it, you know. And uh, yeah, really interesting sort of setup in terms of you know this businessman who has a son kidnapped, and it, you know it, it reminded me a little bit of Parasite in that sense. Yeah. And the sort of relationship between him, the the main, with, which is played by Toshihiro Mifune, who's the way he treats the 
the servant whose kid gets kidnapped by mistake and it becomes this sort of it's funny how it's it sort of starts off as this sort of social commentary at the beginning and then turns into a sort of procedural almost sort of mission impossible type territory you know with that train um sequence um which are just unbelievably entertaining movie and it's it's so good isn't it when you you watch a film that's sort of that old and you're still just riveted by how entertaining it is yeah and proof of what a great yeah kind of genre filmmaker yeah kurosawa was yeah that that, i think that came out when i watched that johnny toe judo movie oh yeah that was it we were talking about that yeah yeah yeah. um that was yeah high and low i mean it's it's, you know it's stupid thing to say they're underrated but certainly they're his kind of urban kind of crime movies are seen to be lesser regarded than than the kind of the the big samurai epics that he's known for. So yeah, um, yeah, and I think that kind of speaks to some of the stuff I've been watching as well, which is the Katano movies. I think they're yeah. very much indebted to to that kind of cinema as well. Yeah, for sure. What else have you been seeing? And the other one I, I kind of definitely wanted to catch up with is I've seen so far a couple of Mikio Naruse films, and this is a director that I again was a sort of blind spot i'd heard of him and i i knew that he was you know if the if the big three are mizuguchi ozu and kurosawa then naruse was the sort of forgotten fourth as it were and you know i know that's crude but but you get the you get the gist of it and i just really interested to see where he would sit in in terms of the form of of those other directors and i think he's very much kind of like more towards ozu but with a more populist, Americanized flavor, he's not sort of abashedly, you know, formulating his own system of filmmaking, his own complete personal style. And there's there's lots of elements to the films that I saw. I mean, the two films that I saw, two of his most famous ones, Floating Clouds and When a Woman Ascends the Stairs. And what's interesting is that both of them put the experience of women at the heart of the movies. That They, they revolve around women's position in Japanese society post-war and how the, the there's a sort of... The tradition is something that was, I think, Japanese women wanted to leave behind, but there was nothing to kind of go to. So a lot the the characters in the movies get caught between adopting a kind of Western westernized lifestyle and kind of being judged for that or just getting married off and becoming subservient to to Japanese patriarchs and kind of being judged for that too. So there's sort of no place for, um, secure place for Japanese femininity to exist post-war. You know, if you look at the way that, that these films are represented and and they're really made, both of them, by, I think, by the central performance of Hideko Takamine, who was absolutely astonishing. Again, a face that I'd known, somebody who had a really long con- career was a child actor actress and had made a lot of films with Naruse and you know I, I know it's really sort of crass to to make western comparisons and uh, but I was tr- trying to think of the sort the sort of style of of actor that that would be of a parallel just to give you a sense of, of the way I was thinking and the closest thing I could come up with was something like a performance like Kate Blanchett in in the Todd Haynes movies you know in Carol particularly where she's very still and the face is very still and only sort of moves and gestures when absolutely necessary. And everything is in the eyes and in the muscles of the face. You know, there's those moments where you can tell somebody's thinking or there's an emotion and there's just little twitches and movements here and there. And yeah, really, really amazing performance. And I think Narusa's films almost reminded me of the sort of 50s work of uh, 
of Wyler, to be honest with you, in, in many ways, in, in the ways that the plot is set up and the music kind of feeds into to pushing the story in certain directions. Yeah, really, really interesting work. Great. Yeah, look forward to catching that over the summer. Um, yeah, nice. What about you? Uh, yeah, so I've been deep in the the nihilism of Takeshi Kitano <laughs> um, for yeah, I've seen sort of four four films in the last week, and the three that the BFI are releasing are Violent Cop, Boiling Point, and Sonatine from the early nineties. Um, all kind of yakuza based, although Violent Cop he plays a cop uh, kind of out to sort of take down some yakuza and then he's he is a kind of yakuza in, in boiling point and, and sonatine and i got into katano in the late 90s with hannah b fireworks which yeah. i also rewatched, which i absolutely adore but it was really interesting to watch the other the earlier films sort of rewatch um boiling point and sonatine which i'd seen a long time ago mm. and and sort of see the progression and What's amazing about his cinema is that it's it's so bleak and it's so nihilist and it's really, you know, downbeat in terms of the tone and the stories. But the filmmaking is so vibrant and vivacious, you know, and it's this kind of real interesting juxtaposition of colour and, you know, kind of style against just these characters fatalistically marching towards death, you mm. know, in kind of all in all situations. It's really, really striking. And it the western comparison you sort of talking about the kind of the crude western comparisons but i think what's what's interesting is it is a cinema that feels very much to me like jean pierre melville's you know you're seeing a national crime cinema through a kind of american b-movie lens you know yeah. and kind of using those codes and conventions and styles to to access something and it's really fascinating and and just thinking of him in the 90s context it's it, watching those films back to back was like okay this is here's a clear contemporary of the Coens he's doing something very very similar in terms of humor and very very dark humor real bleak violence and this yeah kind of nihilistic kind of cynical tone um but what was really interesting was that the filmmaker that it reminded me most of was Wes Anderson and realizing how much Wes Anderson takes a lot of the beats excuse the pun from Kitano cinema particularly his use of um, direct address, operatic music and kind of these really still images. Mm. Um, and he does a lot of these kind of sequences, which is a really slow signposting prelude. So you sort of see the, the, the beginning of something that you just know is going to go badly and how it's going to go badly. And then it cuts to the inevitable aftermath. You know, it misses out the vital moment. And you just see the inevitable disappointment or the inevitable kind of outcome of the stupidity that you've been sort of spending time building up to. Really interesting kind of visual motifs that were that were similar and, and I, I've never really got on with Boiling Point um, as a film it feels a bit too weird but I was I hadn't seen Violent Cop and it was absolutely yeah kind of exhilarating in its darkness it's mm. just really the the films I record were like the work of Don Siegel and John John Borman's Point Blank with an incredibly shocking ending like really really shocking ending but but there's a kind of there's an acceptance and are kind of moving towards the darkness in those films, which by the time you get to Hannah B, which is a much more interesting multi-tonal film, mm. um, it, there's just a more melancholy kind of undercurrent to it. You know, that it's almost as if Katano as a as a character in all of these things has been worn down and is 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 just yeah, kind of more resigned, less kind of facing up to the inevitable end with a fierceness and it's more just trudging towards really interesting um yeah. uh, but there is a little bit of hope in that film as opposed to the others which are much more much yeah more it's, i mean, I mean um, it's interesting that isn't it because if you think of 
you know the way that directors sort of change over time, and maybe there's a there's a sort of sense in which that kind of nihilism, you know, it it works when you're young and you're full of energy, and, you, and there's a sort of rebellion, rebelliousness, and you know, a rage against whatever it might be that the anything that stands for, you know, the mainstream or whatever it, whatever it is that that actually fuels that kind of sensibility where you want to really sort of push the boundaries. It's funny how that the, that doesn't answer the questions <laughs> that you want answering when you get a little bit older. Yeah. But what's it, I think as well, I think you're absolutely right. But I, I, I think that in the case of Katano, it's, there's no sense that there will be answers, but yep. just that, and it's because suicide plays a big part in those films and it, ha, it changes between a, a defiant, you'll never take me alive, copper kind of James Cagney to the end of the road. You know, what else is there? That, and it's between Violent Cop and Hannah B. It's only maybe eight years. Yeah. But it feels like a lifetime in terms of watching that character constantly going up against the, the system and the accuser and, and always just realising it's never going to change. You know, and then there's other things in Hannah B in terms of his backstory, which just adds so much darkness to it. But yeah, I think it's it, it, it's such a clear change, like you say, from a youthful approach to that to a kind of slightly older, very much more worn down. And it did make me think about how how the treatment of subjects kind of changes across a director's career, you know, often talk about late period. We might get into that with Ozu as well, you yeah. know. Like how how does their treatment of their core interests change across across a body of work, I think is is fascinating. So yeah, all all great all great interesting movies really. The other thing I did want to, I sort of mentioned it earlier, was Honda's monster movies yeah. on Amazon Prime, like uh, Dogora and Mothra, and I've got lined up King Kong versus Godzilla. Um, I mean, they're great fun, super trashy, but but no less interested in post-war Japan yeah. and the aftermath of World War II and Japanese society rebuilding and being part of the world after that seismic event. And it's so fascinating to see Tokyo Story and then Mothra, yeah. but also feel that these are filmmakers who are aware of the changing Japanese society and and yeah, just great fun, well worth well worth checking out if you've got the the horrible Amazon, you know. But but there's a lot of good stuff on there at the moment. Yeah, so I mean it's you know it's one of those things, isn't it? It it's, is. <laughs> nothing's perfect in life, as we as we know, and it's you, you've got to sort of uh, reconcile the fact that. You have to deal with these corporations, unfortunately. I know. And then you just think, oh, you know, maybe I will step away. And then the other day they dropped like 10 Satchit Ray movies. Yeah. just like, yeah. oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I know that that's part of their their MO, you know, kind of keeping you on tenterhooks. But but really, it's... Um, it's a it's a good it's a good place to to catch up with older older kind of movies that maybe aren't necessarily as readily available. Yeah, and and the thing is, it's it's not you know you got you got to give them props because it's it's not happening anywhere else. I mean you you know people like ourselves who have access to libraries and stuff, or, or we, we we used to when we could go into physical spaces. You know what I mean? It's much it's much easier, but it is difficult to see this stuff generally yeah. and i think now in the last couple of months there's definitely been a move i think or a realization that back catalogs are going to have to be utilized yeah yeah that's definitely going to be the, the kind of the content that's that's the easiest to kind of get out into the world and uh, and get people to see and just as a note on that i saw hannah b on um the movie library which is the first film i'd watched on there all oh, right um cool. they've got they've got three of katano's movies uh, on there at the moment including kids return and 
Kikijuro um, from around the same period, that sort of mid-90s period. Um, yeah, I mean, I'll have to check all those out because I haven't seen any, uh, you know, apart from Boiling Point and, and a couple of others. That mm. I think I've seen Hannah, Hannah B, but again, it's another sort of blind spot that, that could do with uh, covering it a little bit. But I mean, maybe that's the way to approach it. It's just sort of a directorial thing. You say, okay, I'm going to see a, a good chunk of, like going through all the Melville stuff was just great when uh, yeah. when they were coming out. But I think that's good in terms of like like those kind of gatekeepers and, and like the BFI kind of choosing certain titles to kind of to push, you know, it does help at least focus the watching at the start. Um, and then obviously you've done Naruse, so now I'm thinking, okay, yeah, that's, I can go there next. And then that gives us something to talk about, you know, yep. this, the, the, the process is, is, is kind of interesting. And you do need, you do need the likes of the BFI and movies sometimes to kind of remind you of, of the roads that, that are available to you, I think. So I guess that brings us on to the main meat of the podcast, Tokyo Story. So, I mean, again, we, we've, as I said at the beginning of the show, we, we've kind of had discussions, haven't we, quite a lot maybe over the last year about what what do we do when it comes to these these monuments of cinema that people, not I don't think generally people are wanting to reject them or get rid of them you know, in the same in the same way that they're throwing statues into the into the river, but there's definitely a sense that we have to look beyond them. And yes, we can we can sort of appreciate what they are and and what they've done for cinema. But but even even the selection of say you know Tokyo Story and Citizen Kane and Vertigo and and uh, Passion of Joan of Arc, these things are if they're reiterated all the time, then it it does create a a kind of foregone conclusion as to as to what cinema history should look like. So, I mean, it's just interesting as a starting point. It's, if that's the starting point, then why go why go back to a film like this? Yeah, it's it, it's really interesting to me in terms of thinking about what what gets selected as the best films from a filmmaker's filmography. Mm. Uh, one of the questions I, I put on there on the notes for this episode was, you know, are the best films people's favourites? You know, like, if you were to ask me my favourite Ozu movie, it would be Floating Weeds. Yeah. You know, um, and when I watch Tokyo Story, I can see why it's important in the same way that, you know, you can stand in front of a masterpiece in a museum where you can, like, read a, a kind of classic text and you can see formally and in terms of the subject, in terms of the, you know, the, the dealing of the material dealing with the material why it's given that that space and so many of those titles that you sort of mentioned there like citizen kane vertigo feel important but they don't necessarily they don't necessarily indicate the breadth of a filmmaker's work or even a kind of wide um appreciation for like you say cinema and they're all very serious films they're very earnest films even as formally interesting as they are they're all focused on a on a very important and weighty and sort of stately subject i think that's kind of maybe changing you know but it, it certainly feels like there are films that you should say you think are the best mm. you know and tokyo story is one of them and re-watching it the other day i was like this is a really great film but i would not go back to this film if i was yeah in the mood for an ozu and wanted to sort of, because it feels very rigid and very in a way that some of his other work just doesn't. Um, you know, it feels like I'm engaging with an important work of art, but it's more interesting to me as a gateway to other things. And 
it's hard to say why and how we've got to that position, you know. And I think, that, like you say, it's, there's there's been a repetition of those titles, which maybe comes out of a kind of fear of of not wanting to, of wanting to say, well, actually, what about this? It's kind of a common agreement. Well, if you all say Tokyo Story, that's Ozu yeah, and that yeah, period yeah. of Japanese cinema covered. Yeah, I tend to think that there is maybe something in between that that notion of best and favorite, and that to me relates to the hangover or the the continued influence of auteur theory, which is yeah. the films that are the quintessential distillation of what that filmmaker represents. So, you know, you could say that with Citizen Kane, you can say that with, with Vertigo and with Tokyo Story, I think particularly because it does that thing of stripping away anything extraneous to what would be considered Ozu's key thematic and stylistic interests Mm. you know and he doesn't he doesn't allow the like you say on your notes there he doesn't sort of bring in any any like little kids doing something silly which you know floating weeds has and a lot of his other films sort Mm. of revolve a little bit more around there's there's a little bit of a you know a break of a humorous humorous aside to take you along you know what i mean and i think the importance of this does revolve around that particularly in the way that from the beginning it doesn't it doesn't sort of point you in any directions i don't think it it just lays out what is going on with these characters and requires you more than any other film i think that i can think of to come to it and fill in all of the the repressions and the things that are not said with your own universalist understandings of what the relationship between these characters are in the situation that they're in. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. What's interesting, though, is like when I first saw it, it didn't make me want to investigate any more yeah. of his work, you know, because it not just because it was presented as important, but because the treatment felt very, yeah, very serious and very earnest. And, at yeah. the t- you know, the time and still, you know, it didn't feel like there was a looseness to it. It felt I was like, OK, but only in the sense of like, oh, okay, I get what this filmmaker's about from this, you know, because it's such, like you say, it's such a kind of distillation of, and you're guided towards it to say like, this is the example, you know, this is such a kind of good example of of this style. It felt like, okay, I, I don't know if I want to see many more films like that. And of course, his films are very different a lot of the time, um, which obviously you learn is, is the case for most auteurs. You know, if you really kind of spend time with their work, um, you realise kind of what is presented as, their style is it's much more complex than that i think that's something i've definitely learned the more the more time i've spent with cinema is not to not to assume that tokyo story is ozu although it is a very very wonderful kind of crib sheet on on his his way of looking at the world and his kind of his his style of filmmaking so in in terms of the the plot it's or the story it's pretty basic you've got two parents grandparents who are visiting tokyo to to visit their their family there isn't really much more to say than that is that it's um uh, shukichi is the uh, is the father and tommy is the is the wife and they it's funny how at, at the beginning they are so sort of they're not parents parents who sort of would never criticize they don't want to impose they every any time the the children sort of say something that is apologetic or what they haven't done or admit to something, they turn it back around and say, no, no, don't worry, you're too busy. So they've got quite a few children 
Um, so they've got an eldest son, Kochi, and uh, who's married to Fumiko, and then is it four or five other children? Uh, so it's you know, four other children, isn't it? So Kaniko is the eldest daughter. Shoji is the eldest, the second son, who is deceased. But we meet Noriko, who's quite a a integral part of the of the film, I would say, in terms yeah. of not being a blood relative. But she's the one who actually sort of treats them with a the degree of respect perhaps that you would uh, think and then they actually live don't they in the in the rural town with two other the youngest son and daughter Kyoko and Kizo so they come to Tokyo and it's yeah, Kizo lives in Osaka doesn't Sorry it? yeah that's right that's right yeah, yeah yeah but they come to Tokyo and it's it, it's basically just the time most of the film is the time spent in Tokyo and the way that the the relationships between the parents and the children are are enacted in terms of what happens, but also a lot of the conversations that is alluding to things that that's happening, you know, internally, but also things that have happened in in the past. So there's a, a lot that you have to kind of not figure out, but infer from what is going on. Yeah, it's it's a film that is deceptively simple, I think, and it's a really wonderful undermining of that almost kind of stereotypical idea of kind of you know the repressed Japanese culture where like you say that everything feels kind of apologetic and and uh yeah kind of don't not not unaddressed but over the course of the film you know you really become aware of the family dynamic and the kind of the intergenerational changes and the the, what the parents particularly come to learn about about their children you know from visiting them um it's a it's a kind of road movie in that sense you, know, you follow them to the to Tokyo where they're quickly kind of pushed off you know and yeah. told to go and go to the know, health farm or whatever it is the the health, yeah, yeah the health spa <laughs> you know under the guise that it's you know that the kids are looking after them. really the kids don't want them around you yeah. know they, they feel they feel burdened by them um not necessarily in a kind of overt conscious sense but in the in that way that they're they've got busy lives and they've got yeah. their own things and it's it's uh, but it's the accumulation that's what's so wonderful yeah. about the film is you feel the accumulation of all, all these slights that the the parents kind of suffer and and obviously the kind of it builds to a very very kind of sad and tragic finale and and also yeah the the, the positioning of Noriko as a kind of non-blood relative and how again you understand family through her role in it which is no shouldn't be an obligation but she's so invested in these people and it's a really beautiful film and yeah it's you can sort you can see why it's it's regarded so well because it's a it's a very powerful film in its simplicity i think do, do you think that the i mean when i was watching it i was thinking where the not the blame lies but what he's is ozu saying about the generations and their their take on each other as it were because i think that Kaneko, who is the eldest daughter, is definitely the sort of most overt in sort of trying to p- palm off the uh, the parents wherever she can. You know, yeah, I mean, she's horrible. To, yeah, I mean, she's just a horrible. Yeah, yeah, pretty pretty horrendous. But the, <laughs> yeah, yeah. the eldest son, I think, is kind of interesting because he he sort of goes along with that a little bit more. Although although there is that moment where they're about to go out for a sort of day out, and he's a doctor, so he gets called away, and he's you know he's quite quick to want to get called away to, to go go see a patient. Yeah. But I think it's interesting because 
think sometimes this is where you've got to read the the, the cultural differences a little bit or, t- or try to sort of comprehend those because the eldest son would, would traditionally be the one who would in- inherit the wealth and th- but he would then be charged with looking after the parents which clearly is not not happening it's the youngest ones who are looking after the, the parents and I was reading a little bit about this it's really interesting how in the post-war era because obviously the sort of allied forces were in charge they changed the tax system quite radically so you didn't get this passing of all of the wealth and all of the property to the eldest son anymore they changed that made that kind of changed the way that that was structured so it's interesting how that sort of plays into i think the way that this family drama is is set up and maybe it's something that would be much more obvious to a japanese audience perhaps potentially yeah i mean i kind of read it that yeah i think koichi as the oldest is an interesting character in the sense like yeah he's he feels like he's got an important role serving the community the status of that you know that yeah is is shifts in terms of our perception of it throughout the film really interestingly and Kyoko is obviously the youngest daughter, still at home, looking after the parents, kind of school teacher. But within the film, it's clear that if she marries, then someone else is going to have to, you know, look after the parents, you know, yeah. and kind of take that. Response. But they just push it down the road. Yeah. And I think they don't really deal with it. And that sense of kind of moving it down the road is obviously what, what ends up kind of with tragic consequences for the the characters um, and that family. But you see through the parents how that might be a different kind of cultural approach within Japanese culture yeah. compared to what might have been, you know, pre-war or kind of earlier way of, of dealing with kind of family situations. And they, they struggle with it in terms of what you're saying about where the blame lies. What I, I don't, I don't think it lies anywhere, you know, I think it's, and I think, I, I think that apart from kind of CJ, you know, who's obviously drawn as a very selfish character, <laughs> yeah. you know, but then obviously within, you know, it's, it's, it's unfortunate that it's a female character, but then also, you know, Keizo is, is equally selfish, but has more of a kind of redemptive moment towards the end where he kind of realises yeah. what, you know, I guess obviously, you know, when you're kind of working it out, you need different characters to be, have different kind of personalities. But for the most part, it's just, they're just living their lives. What I love about it as well is it's clear that, the understanding of the city and what goes on in the city feels like a relatively recent phenomenon in, in, mm-hmm. in the Japan that we see in the film. Like their idea of the city and the reality of their children's lives in the city is, is kind of, there's a big gap there. And you get the sense even like particularly Noriko is kind of really struggling to get by, is kind of happy to live in the city and be part of it. But but it's not a very glamorous existence. It's a kind of hand to mouth existence. And the way we understand that is through the way that Ozu frames and shoots locations and interiors and, and kind of his understanding of interior and exterior space, which is absolutely phenomenal um, yeah, yeah. in his career. Yeah, I'll, I'll come on to that in a second. I just wanted to, I, I wanted to just think maybe a little bit more about that sense of, of disappointment because it's, it's there's that really great scene where the, the father goes out and gets, gets pissed with a sort of, I think he's an old war buddy. And, you know, there's been little sort of inferences, or sorry, implications about being disappointed with the children, but it really comes out in that sequence, doesn't it? What was interesting to me is that that idea, and, you know, we talked a little bit before we did this episode about how maybe that these universal themes are still being played out all the time, and, you know, particularly in the political and um, the general social circumstances we've had over the last few years. 
that idea of what the expectations of children are of their parents and vice versa because there's that there's that sense of the parents being a you know being a burden but there's definitely a sort of sense from the parents that there is disappointment of the children and I'm just yeah I think I think one of the one of the great things about the film is actually you could kind of side with the parents or the children because I think that there's a sort of there's a sense in which what are the children supposed to do yeah obviously Kaneko is pretty is pretty horrendous but it's like what is the relationship how does that develop over time when your parents get old and what does looking after them mean and then what are the parents expectations of of the children you know what I mean what were they is it is the disappointment merely about the fact that they're not together as a group and they're not being looked after or is it some sort of sense that they're that selfishness as people is the disappointment that the parents feel and whether it's a disappointment specifically with their children that they come to understand or whether it's just you know that they they feel like the, the world has changed yeah you know and it inevitably has and their children are part of the modern world and that it's not the world that they this is you know necessarily know or understand and they kind of express their disappointment in terms of but also say like we have too many expectations they're kind of aware of the reality of the life that the children are leading and have to lead on their own you know and they kind of question themselves whether it's fair to even expect your children to to live up to a certain expectation but what you see is they obviously have from the country and not visiting and not seeing their children a sense of what those lives are like and then when they see it it's a much a disappointment with their their way of seeing the world that's yeah. kind of that's changed um but it, it's it's manifest in the in their children which gives it such poignancy you know it's not an abstract it's not like they go to tokyo as a kind of break and are just observing the city they have a, a conduit which is so tethered so they understand those changes in such a specific way and then they pass that on to the audience you know which is one of the you know again one of the reasons why i think the the film is so is so regarded as I think is because of that uh, point of view, that kind of script decision to tell the story through the older generation. Yeah, you know, kind of visiting rather than the younger generation visiting or being visited upon. It really situates the the audience in 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 that in that perspective. So you you see the changes in the world and in their family through their eyes, and that gives it kind of a real poignancy, and feels kind of quietly radical in a way, you know, in terms of giving the space to older characters to be uncomfortable and kind of disappointed and disconnected from their surroundings without then passing judgment on why that's happened. Uh, it doesn't blame the children. It doesn't blame, you know, the world, the war. It's just it's just a kind of observation of, well, the world is changing. And yeah. There's a like you say, there's a gap between those generations which will never be kind of met now. Think too many things have happened and, and the world is too different which is yeah a kind of accumulative power towards the end of the film which is is kind of devastating yeah and it, and it also sort of really doesn't shy away from that idea that you know you just don't have a choice when it comes to your family and what do you do when you you know you there's maybe people in your family you actually do not like <laughs> you know and you wouldn't be giving them the time of day unless they were in your family and then even sort of from the other the other perspective there's that there's that sense of guilt and distance that you feel you know at certain times from family members and and but the impossibility of bridging that gap you know what i mean yeah. the, that sense of here is this person who is absolutely fundamental to my to my life has brought me up or 
you know, is my child, but I really don't have any idea who they are. And it's very, you know, I think there's a lot of that that, that sort of feeds into the, the repressive notions of family relationships that are very difficult to deal with. And I think it's it's putting those those ideas out there and le- almost sort of leaving them to percolate in the audience's mind. Like, yeah, yeah we, we, the film knows that everybody in the audience is sort of experiencing this in one way or another, you know? Yeah, and like you say, kind of what's your entry point in terms of your relationship in your family and your kind of relationship with other family members? I don't, I don't think it's a spoiler to say, you know, it's alluded to it there in terms of where the film goes, but Tommy, uh, the mother, kind of uh, dies towards the end of the film and it's really telling... It was really telling for me in how the children react yeah. to that that event, you know, and what they do, and and how how quickly they want to flee to their old, you know, their their existing lives, you know, and not not really address what's happened, which I think is really really interesting in terms of the the differences within that family, and just that again, like the film leaves the weight of weight of it with the father who is obviously devastated there there is no real there's no there's nothing after the death of his wife you know there's no. so beautiful where and koichi is the as the doctor kind of comes and, and sort of takes the father outside with with shij and says you know she probably won't last till the morning and and he just sort of says oh so she's not going to live and then he just repeats it and mm. it's so yeah you know like the this kind of willingness or this this you know this kind of acceptance and, and facing of the reality yeah um and then the neighbor comes past the next it was next day or, or and just sort of says oh so you're on your own now and he says yes and he says oh you're going to be lonely she says you're going to be lonely now he says yes i'm going to be lonely now and it's like there's not even a sort of discussion of that it's just a, f- a fact and it, it ties into what you've just said yeah yeah and the kids have gone yeah. you know koichi's gone obviously feeling you get the sense from that performance by the actor that just not addressing it, which is a beautiful irony because he's a doctor and faces death every day. And CJ's kind of taken what she wants and gone. <laughs> yes. um, and the one who stays is Noriko, you know, yeah, and yeah. she doesn't have to stay and she stays. And Keizo says he'll stay. And then when he finds out Noriko can stay, he, he's like, oh, he's I'll off. go then. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. um, and it, it, it's just, yeah, um, life kind of returns to the normal that they, they all know. But it's a very different kind of normal um, for all of them. It, it was what I love about it as well is the sense of what's coming throughout the film. There's a kind of couple of visual moments with with the mother. There's a beautiful line where she goes for a walk with her grandson, which kind of again projects this story into the future, beyond this generational shift into the what what's going to come down the line for those children and their children. Where she sort of says to the the grandson who's just kind of a few years old and is just sort of playing and ignoring her kind of by the time you're a doctor i wonder where i'll be you know she's yeah she's aware that that things are happening for her but also that the changes that are coming in in her family and in the society are are kind of rapid and that what's happening what she sees in her children is not how that's not how it's going to stay you know, they will have to face the same disappointments the same readjustment of understanding about what life is at the same point you know when when this grandchild is is of age and that was just so beautiful of, in terms of it, it did in the script what ozu is just so great at which is suggesting the universe and the world outside the frame the, the longevity of, of of these ideas and these stories feel so embedded in it yeah that you you feel like the, the, this story will carry on after the film's finished and he does that in every frame really in terms of 
relocating these characters in a, in a universe in a world which feels uh, so deep through his kind of techniques of filming i think and just in terms of the i mean you know people can read so much about ozu's style and uh you know his shooting practices and the still camera and the pillow shots and 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 just coming coming back to it now at this point was there anything that sort of struck you more i mean for me I mean, again, I don't, I don't know whether it was to do with the just the quality of the the restoration, which is absolutely brilliant. But it it almost seemed to me, you know, that when you get the the, the static framed shots and they're just so beautifully constructed in terms of mise en scène and just in terms of their composition and the symmetry and the way that that sort of shapes. There is almost a sort of, you know, there's a, they could be formalist paintings if you just use black and white. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but what really struck me this time is that how they're they're kind of like they seem like tunnels, and I'd never sort of <laughs> noticed this before. But it's almost kind of like a lot of the the way that the the shots are established is like we are we are in a kind of long tunnel here, and I'm just wondering. I really wondered whether that was a sort of effect that he was wanting to to go for, or or whether it's just I don't know whether it's just that effect of trying to see through spaces and along spaces, along different axes. So you're, we're kind of facing the action in a, in a specific kind of way. And that, and that reads alongside the way that he does the, the reverse, the shot reverse shot with the portrait kind of framing. If that, any of that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. It does. I think, yeah, I think there is an intentionality to creating those tunnels is a great way of, of kind of putting it. I think I really like that because yeah, the, the, the sheer depth of, yeah, the kind of the action in the image was yeah kind of noticeable this time but also because we we recently we both recently saw the um a flavor of green tea over rice yeah yeah you know and it gets so just kind of seeing so much work in in the last couple of years and, and kind of recently yeah you, you do see how he kind of configures his world and i do think i do well okay i feel that there's a real intention to seeing through the space into the space beyond you know like there's so much happening in other houses like there's a great scene in this where you sort of see someone preparing like tea in the in another house yeah you know like it, it, in, in the house next door it's very very clearly happening there and it's you can't help but feeling like like i'm saying that there's this connection between but also that the yeah this is this is one life in a billion lives and they're all they all have the same stories and journeys to go through you know and they're all living the same lives and they're they're kind of oblivious to the same things and they're aware of the same things and it kind of creates a realism in terms of these people's lives that is kind of unavoidable and just feels so so rich you know um it's a bit like roma in that way when i watched roma yeah. i had that feeling of that there is a world going on beyond the frame here this is not a set mm -hmm. even though he's as meticulous in terms of what we see you know in this in the academy ratio yeah. it's amazing how it, it, it seems it's at the same time completely flat yet has this incredible depth as, as you've described yeah. there's a similar like that the tunnels are good i because it feels simultaneously kind of contained and claustrophobic in yeah. the room that you're in immediately but there is that sense just off of yeah kind of a limitless field yeah and it would be dangerous to say that it's kind of unique but certainly the the combination of of styles that he puts together across his body of work 
feels feels unique to him you know in terms mm. of both that framing and the depth and and how he puts it all together you know you you do know when you're watching an ozu movie yeah he is a, a he is a filmmaker with a very very clear signature and it, it is down to object placement object color mise on scène the feng shui of 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 how things are put together in the frame is very very noticeable and very obvious and and creates such a a sensory experience from from watching his films and again when you when you kind of go back to this idea of, of auteur and you put you know you're you're putting him up against kurosawa you know um mitsuguchi is obviously harder to place i think mm. but but when you look at a kurosawa movie and you look at a an Ozu movie they have very clear stars and then when you put them together as kind of symbols of Japanese cinema and then you put them next to Wells and Hitchcock you start to actually you can see that's where the ideas of these filmmakers come from from reducing almost reducing these to a kind of a manageable way of assessing because obviously they are kind of reductive in any sense because there's obviously much more going on in this film compared to you know even later work or, or very very early work there's a kind of an evolution and a change and differences but but ultimately you're reducing reducing it but i don't always think reducing it is a negative thing that's why i'm sort of saying it you know like i'm not i don't think that us kind of saying well there is a style and it's this and this is how we feel about it is necessarily reductive um because you you want to try and get that that voice Mm. you know and try and access that voice which is such an interesting voice in world cinema Mm. and and it's clear that just to sort of round off on on tokyo story the influence is clear and you can read about directors who talk about, I mean, all the directors <laughs> in the West, you know, in, in sort of post-New Wave terms, talk about Ozu. Um, we talked a little bit at the beginning and maybe we can sort of think about that. How, how does this, to place a film like this in front of an audience who is used to watching, you know, contemporary movies, is this one of the, the issues that cinema has? And again, maybe in this in this context right now, it's something that that could be addressed because we're going to have to go back to older movies. That sense that that movies do or did or continue to have a style depending on depending on the director that you're talking about, but also on the the intention to make a cinematic style overt. You know what I mean? Because I think that we in the last ten or fifteen years, I think that there is there is a sort of rail against the idea of a director being overly directorial you know what i mean this person is sort of inaritu is one of the ones that sort of always criticized i think for you know you know he's just up his own ass with his camera trickery you know i I think there's something to be said for that kind of criticism but on the other hand here is somebody who is you know in ozu who who has created a, a kind of lexicon of filmmaking that is more or less all their own and if somebody tried to make tries to do that now i think it's much more difficult because we don't have that that sense of being allowed to experiment formally in film is much more difficult and i'm I'm trying to figure out i mean i'm sure that that there are sort of variables as to why but it's difficult to pin that down isn't it yeah yeah, that's a big that's a big one um i think that a lot of it a lot of the the acceptance of auteurs in terms of cinephiles and even kind of you know just general kind of film culture seems to link much more kind of readily the the personality to the the kind of the filmmaking yeah that's a good point because i think that inarit is a great example of he just comes across as a really obnoxious person (laughs) 
you know, and that without yeah. any respect for any collaborators and their involvement, which is historically how auteurs have done it. But that seems to have changed. And there seems to be less tolerance of his of his auteurism in many senses, you know. But you look at, I'm thinking of someone like Barry Jenkins, who is kind of beloved as a person with a personality. So his filmmaking is is kind of regarded more positively in terms of his development of an auteur style and what is the Barry Jenkins style, you know, thinking also last year of something like The Souvenir, you know, which kind of yeah. has a lot of Ozu, yeah. you know, but, but, but Joanne Hogg was a very generous interviewee and a very interesting person. You know, there seems to be a willingness to listen to people talk about or to regard people as auteurs as long as they're not problematic. <laughs> yeah. You know, yes. you know which has, I, I, I think that feels like a shift, but, and I don't know whether that's good or bad, you know, that's a different thing, but that that's just my kind of initial response is like, I think that if we like the people, we're willing to see them as auteurs in it and, and, and I have appreciate their visual style more. Yeah. Mm, I guess, so, yeah. I mean, someone like Nolan as well. As yeah. Well, you know, Nolan, like Nolan's kind of tricky, isn't he? Cause like, we don't really know him. Yeah. There's a, there's an idea of him, which kind of almost negates any kind of serious conversation about his, his filmmaking approach. Maybe it is because th these people are so in the, you know, there's a, so many public forums for people to be discussed and for them yeah. to be visible. But like, so I think there's something along the lines that it's about that these filmmakers are what they are. And if you don't like what they are, then you're never going to be able to appreciate them. It's almost kind of like, it, it goes back to that, the tribalism of popular culture that if this is your thing, that's great. If it's not your thing, then you're going to land blast it. Like if you think of somebody like Tarantino or, or Wes Anderson, it's like the criticism of those films are, are be less like Tarantino and Wes Anderson. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, I don't yeah. want you to make films like everybody knows what a Tarantino, what kind of what you're going to get with a Tarantino film and, and Wes Anderson the same. And if it's like, Oh, why is he so, why is Wes Anderson so bothered about symmetry? And why does everything have to be it's like, mm. Because, because he is, you know what I mean. That's his, that's his stylistic approach. <laughs> that's his formalism, yeah. and he's not a re he's not a realist in that sense. So if if you come from the position of a film should be reflective of reality in some, you know, in some understanding of that, then you're going to be like, this is just somebody who's fannying around with with the dimensions of his camera or something, you know? Yeah, I think as well they're good examples because they're kind of which kind of goes back to why there might be a kind of difference and why those filmmakers that I've just mentioned might be slightly different is that there's there's never the sense or not it's not discussed very much or considered very much that Tarantino or Wes Anderson have something to say yeah you know like they are that's true. kind of stylists as opposed to the even which I don't if anything is always true of them but also I don't think it's always true of the old kind of classic works but there is this idea that there's a kind of a seriousness and a commentary in those works that makes them valid as as objects um, in a way that referencing other artists for the purpose of kind of creating a stylistic exercise is is not serious because it's not on a marriage of form and content. Now, I don't agree with that, but I, you, I definitely hear those arguments, which kind of goes back again to what we're saying about Tokyo Story is a serious film and it, it's unavoidably got stuff to say. Mm. So it carries a weight of importance in a way that other films maybe don't. And that's a kind of, I think that's a generational and cultural shift. But also, you know, those films I mentioned, you know, The Souvenir and Barry Jenkins are also arguably films that have 
something to say from di different voices, different perspectives, but certainly engage with a kind of a realism of experience that is being cinematically presented. And I think as well, Ozu was a contemporary of, of Honda, who I mentioned, you know, go, but, but, but those films were, would never be taken seriously mm. or considered important. They're just monster movies, B-movies, and it takes time to kind of reassess and position. But, and what I wanted to say right at the start as well about these things is you don't see comedies in these lists. No. So, so I do think that there is a weightiness to it that if you're not, if you're not engaging with a serious kind of societal or cultural or kind of human issue, then you're, yeah, you're just a kind of a technician or a stylist, which is, mm. and you could yeah, never it's say. It's like, yeah. uh, um, Ozu, I mean, this film was never um, released immediately in, uh, in, in America or, or in the UK. So it wasn't kind of like, oh no, this is a drop dead masterpiece from the, from the start. I mean, it got its, its you know, its share through patronage really through film festivals and, and directors calling yeah. attention to Ozu. So, you know, it's like that, that idea of something that's come, come into itself over time, over, over reappraisal. And that always as well has a sort of element of who do we want to champion and what are the, what are the politics behind that? Yeah. Not that I know what the, the politics particularly are because, but they are kind of there, aren't they? That's a good point you make there in terms of like, you mentioned earlier about, you know, it's showing this to a modern audience. There's thinking that these films, when they released, like you say, were huge blockbusters, but they weren't, you know, they were festival films that were shown in uh, rep houses and the urban intellectual centres mm. that then gained a following, that then kind of had influence. These are not huge blockbuster films. So again, they would probably find a home amongst the, the, the same audience now. You couldn't necessarily just take it into a, a multiplex and say, but then, but that that would have been the case in the fifties and sixties as well. Yeah, so yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. It does relate to that that question, you know, at the beginning, where when we're talking about films, we we, we sort of conflate these ideas of best with personal favorite, and again, with is this the representation of what this filmmaker kind of stood for as an artist? And we conflate those three those three kind of ideas at times i mean i wouldn't go if somebody said to me where should you start with ozu i'd probably say well you know his, his most famous film is tokyo story but you know late late spring or early summer or um green tea over rice which just was just really nice to watch wasn't it you know what i mean yeah. it wasn't sort of portentous and um and, and yeah i mean rigid you described it and i think that in some ways that that is very very true but again its rigidity is is expecting you to find the cracks in that edifice yeah. of rigidity. If we're uh, you know using yeah, those yeah. allegories or metaphors, no, no, I think yeah, I think Togo Story is about rigidity as much yeah, as it's it is yeah. So it's 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 formally it's formally constructed in order to to make that point, and it does it does it really really well. Yeah, and of course. The universal themes are things that are picked up all the time. I mean, we watched this, we both watched this film. I know it's not a Japanese film. And again, I'm, I don't want to conflate Asian-ness in, in, in any sort of a reductive way. But th this film that was based on the podcast uh, from This American Life called The Farewell was really interesting in sort of that that sense of what the family responsibilities are. So this is the this is a story that follows a, a Chinese American family who learn the grandmother is has only got a short while to live and they decide that they're not gonna give her this information and then and then the, the granddaughter comes back from America and is really torn about, you know, because she's brought up in this in the Western scientific culture and 
feels like that she should have this information, but the rest of the family are, are, are prohibi- prohibiting her from 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 telling the giving the grandmother the truth. Yeah, and I th- yeah, hopefully people will see that we're not doing that in a kind of reductive. Oh, it's you know Japan and China are the same, but but certainly it felt like an interesting counterpoint as a modern retelling of that story of the kind yeah. of intergenerational change and shift with the added layer in the farewell of obviously like you say it's not just the granddaughter who's americanized by kind of being born and growing up there or you know kind of growing up there because she's born in in china and leaves when they're very young but that her parents, parents have are as well yeah. be- become americanized and kind of american citizens and and they they are kind of caught even more in between the chinese way of doing things and the the american way of doing things and yeah, it's 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 more of an overt comedy in places, um, but certainly, yeah, kind of intriguing tale about about kind of the role of of children, grandchildren, and 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 parents and grandparents in in how a family operates, particularly around the really serious and the 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 um, the, the kind of the the end of life stuff, you know, which which is it's a really great cinematic device to kind of bring people together in that way but also it's it, it's a it's it's one of those events that unifies a family even if it's just temporarily and in terms of geography a strange members kind of come back together and i think in the film both the matriarch's sons live in america but neither neither of them have been back together in china sure. for 25 years so it's such a it's a, there's this wonderful moment where you realize obviously that they have their own individual understandings of china and their home their homeland but that's changed again when they're back together because the Mm. family dynamic is different when they're in america without being in that in that structure with the matriarch at the top it's really really clever um and really fascinating and like tokyo story there doesn't really come to a conclusion about whether the old way is good or the new way is good or whether the chinese way is good or whether the American way is good, you know, it feels like it's these are questions that are too big to answer in in anything, mm. let alone a film. But it's kind of just engaging with those. Um, and I really love the ending of the farewell. I just thought <laughs> yeah. it could have gone down a very traditional resolution, but it doesn't because it felt much more kind of messy, like the Tokyo story ending, like much more closer to real life where, yeah. You know, we just kind of go back and we don't really know anything else. We've just had that experience and, and, and try and learn from it. And it also a reminder that these universal themes of family and how you exist in a family and how and your role in a family and how you how you maintain those bonds are universal and kind of timeless. And as long yeah. as there will be families, there'll always be these the need to greater understand how families work <laughs> yeah yeah you know. and it's so it's so interesting about these films as well i mean again maybe it's the counterpoint to the way that the drama of the family is is sort of perceived in the west you know if you're not if you're not shouting each other and throwing each other out and and all of that kind of stuff and there's not sort of the action isn't coalesced around particular incidents or particular antagonisms that are on the surface and can be seen that doesn't happen in these films. It is it is all about that, that that sense of what's behind the surface in in terms of and and you know if you think about my family and you think about the way that the interactions take place, you know ninety nine percent of it is the stuff that's that's unsaid and it, it allows you a sort of a much more sophisticated relationship between yourself and the film. 
I mean, I, I, and I guess that's my own sort of uh, predilections for for when I get it, stuff gets explained to me too much in movies. Says, yeah, I could, you know, I could have figured that out, or or no, I wanted to have my own sort of viewpoint on 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 that. And I, I think that's one of the uh, for, for both of these films. I think it's it's an, a really clever way of dealing with what is the one of the key elements of of the way that families both have to function because you have to repress a lot, but also it's their underlying problem, isn't it? It's the underlying tension. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, both are are kind of cinematic in, in, in that understanding of the accumulation of images and moments. You know, like you say, there's lots of little moments where gestures and the odd phrase is left hanging in the air, but, but, but how they build to a, a bigger picture of the family dynamic is, is really well handled so that by the end, you've got a sense of, the dynamic of those families and and how there are historical ways of being that have led to an inevitability which you don't understand till you get there and you've seen how these people live their lives amongst each other and it's really moving in that sense of both a kind of yes a sadness like which is just a, a sadness is it's very human which is yeah a lot of the time the biggest problem we have is that we can't communicate properly with each other or we don't or we let too much time pass and that's relevant in every area of our life not just immediate family but friendships and relationships you know and it's 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 a it's a truth that never kind of gets old if it's if it's retold in the in kind of these ways you know i thought as well i think what's what what's important to you know just to kind of go back as well which i just thought about this but i think it's important to talk about the farewell in this context is because this is a modern film with a modern you know young uh, rising star aquafina in the lead you know mm. very popular amongst the younger generation um, and myself, you know, uh, I think she's fantastic in the film. And, yeah. But if, if you want people to to go back, it's important to say, actually, you, the farewell, if you like the farewell and you're interested in this kind of really quiet and honest depiction of family, then try Ozu. Yeah. You know, um, it's kind of it's trying to use and seeing those parallels, which are not I don't think there's, there's anything really formally the same um, and culturally not really the same, but the, but, the, but they feel tonally similar to how they're trying to tell this intergenerational story. And you want people to then kind of seek out other work. How do you get kids into Ozu? Well, the farewell <laughs> might be a way of, yeah. of doing that. Seeing those links, which are thematic, I think it is important to do, you know, rather than saying, well, they're kind of old. And you know, if you like new films, you won't like old films, which I think is, 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 is kind of not giving people credit sometimes they just need they just need that roadmap yep indeed indeed so that that just about wraps it up for our season 11 uh neil any any um <laughs> i dread to say highlights from this year um but because it's been just yeah it's been what it's been but um i've been thinking about it over the last sort of week or so and and an interesting season in terms of i think that we have gone Apart from this episode, we have gone as diverse as we possibly could in terms of the the films that we've looked at and the approaches to the episodes. Yeah, I think that is definitely a yeah that would definitely be a highlight for me as well in terms of like the 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 increasing uh, scope and uh, engagement that comes with that of of the podcast. You know, it's been almost. I mean, it's weird because a lot of these were planned kind of pre-COVID. So obviously, you know, we've talked about this. You know, in terms of wanting to really 
kind of try and extend the types of episodes and the types of content, the types of guests and, and that that we've that we've got. And it seems to have yeah. really kind of come to fruition of late. Um, yeah, just yeah, it felt it felt like a season where we were kind of really starting to, to do what we've recently realized is what we want to do, which is be as as diverse as possible. And I know that we both have further ambitions in that field, particularly in terms of, you know, shifts in the culture um you know that kind of if you've read our newsletter you'll sort of be aware of um our kind of approach to that um but you know certainly in terms of you know black and indigenous and people of color cinema um definitely need some i think that's an area where we uh can do more work um but i feel like we're on that road um and this feels like a good season to encapsulate where we are now um and the the berlin trip takes on an extra poignancy you know yeah, i was gonna mention cause, that because i don't know when we're gonna do that again ever you know um uh, be in the same room recording um at a film festival there you know like it's it's a planet yeah. away isn't it god it's it is yeah it is um and also i just wanted to mention that you know the 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 mark cousins um episode um just because it's always great to have mark cousins on uh but just you know kind of having the situation and the fact that we were recording it online, which we've done a lot, but understanding actually the only way we can do it is online. So let's all do it together kind of thing was a really a kind of nice episode, yeah. you know, and uh, yeah, that was really enjoyable to 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 make that work it was nice. So, yeah, it's been it's been a it's been a good season, I think. And I'm excited about the next one. Yeah, uh, definitely. So and I think just on that final note there, that the sense of maybe doing a bit more formal experimentation, maybe a little bit of video here and there, utilizing the YouTube channel, and I've definitely got sort of ideas about, um, again, another sort of, uh, how should I put it, sort of essayistic type of uh, episode a la The Voice or Knowing Sounds. Um, yeah. Well, definitely, it's something that I'm, I'm thinking about for, for next Was The Voice this episode, this season? Was this season? It was, yeah, yeah, yeah. God, yeah. I mean, that was amazing as well. Yeah, yeah. so, uh, yeah, no. It's, that feels like a planet away as well. Yeah, it does, it does actually. Yeah. But I mean, that the, the thing with that was, um, again, it's it, it's the organised, that was a year in the making, that one just you know getting everybody's work together and then you know sort of three months editing bit by bit so uh, but definitely something of that ilk uh, moving forward but great to uh, spend the season with you Neil as always yeah pleasure and uh, we will be back in late September early October most likely we thank you for sticking with us Um, if you want to support the podcast a little bit more we have the Patreon site where you can read our newsletters and get any of our further bonus content but until the autumn thank you very much for listening this has been the cinematologist podcast it's a ball and fire.